Hey Toy Coitery, welcome to the Marsham Toy Hour, where we discuss anything and everything designer toys. I'm Gary Ham. I'm Teresa Hawkins. I'm George Gaspar. What do you think? What do you think of our new intro, guys? Yeah. What toy- did you I can't say? You toy- actually toy- did it. Toy Coitery. So he's. So toy- Gary found a new word, uh, Coitery, which means like a small group of people who are into the same thing. And I joked that we should rename our intro into the same toy family. We should do Toy Coterie, and he actually did it. <laughs> George, there was an article put out this week on artsy.net that was talking about how the collectible designer toys have become an art form. And in that article, the uh, author of it decided to use the word Coterie to describe, as a group, a bunch of in-demand artists that do what we do in this toy scene. So I thought it was uh, a unique word. I had to look it up. But then Teresa said, hey, this we could use this for our new intro. All right, well, if that's the one you want to go with, let's go with it. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. I'll revert back to the other one next week. Can I just say that I like that it was an inside joke beforehand and nobody else was in on it? <laughs> you mean not everyone read the exact same article that we did, Jess? Come on. But, you know, we have a lot of people on the line, so let's go ahead and get to our guests. So today's guest, he's an L.A.-based designer that's lended his amazing talent and eye for design to a very long list of clients. That includes Target, Lucasfilm, Nickelodeon, Nike, Hasbro, and more recently, many of you may be familiar with his designs in a couple of recent Dunny series by Kid Robot. He's also known to many simply as The Beast is Back, but we will call him Chris Lee for short. So welcome, Chris. Hey, guys. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. Long time listener. First time caller. Yeah. <laughs> so why do you call yourself The Beast is Back? Well, The Beast is Back was something I coined in college. I just kind of stuck with it. I've had it for so long that if I just if I changed it now, that I think it would just cause too much confusion. I, don't, I didn't know if there was a bigger story than that. Uh, <laughs> well, the story for how I came up with the name was, uh, well, for my class, we needed to create a name for our portfolio. So I was listing out a bunch of phrases and things that I thought were catchy and kind of ambiguous because a lot of my classmates were picking things like their name and then design and then dot com. And yeah. so I was like, OK, let me let me come up with a bunch of phrases. And uh, I, I really like the word beast because it's kind of short and sweet. And then, uh, yeah, the beast is back was basically initially a, a be- uh, like a, a guy in a suit with a beast head ringing a doorbell. Literally, the beast was back. But yeah, that was like that was in the beginning. It, it's changed. I a lot need that as then. a toy, by the way, Chris. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I should make something with that. Speaking but, um, of your college days, Chris, I don't think a lot of people realize that you were designing toys back when you were in college, a wee lad in your young twenties. Like most people, probably are familiar with your doing the the recent Dunny series and then your illustration work that you've done for the large list of companies that we mentioned in the intro. But most people probably aren't familiar that you were designing toys. Back in 2006, the first company you worked with was called Weedy Weed, yeah. and they're no longer around, but they did produce nope. a couple of original designs that you did called the Urbanite series. Yeah, the Urbanite. So it's actually even further back than that. It was uh, 2005. Wow. Okay, so how do you get noticed in 2005? There were not that many toy producers around. It was The scene was really just kind of starting out back then. You were in college. You weren't that established. How does someone, and you were so young, you're probably the youngest person that I can think of that got a mass production toy. How do you get noticed by Weedy Wheat to then, you know, go on to get mass production toys? So <laughs> uh, the very first time I was introduced to kind of like, well, I guess there's no name for it, but in the early 2000s, it was just called Urban Vinyl. So Christmas of 2002, 
uh, one of my cousins had bought each of us a blind box. And um, that blind box was Pete Fowler's Monsterisms, Volume 1 or Volume 2. I can't remember which one it was. But I mean, prior to that, I'd never seen anything like this before. And so when I opened it, I ended up getting the Chase figure, which is like this guy with the carrot. He had a striped shirt. And I think his name was the W or something. And then I was like, where did you get this? And then she said, uh, oh, the store on Hate Street called Kid Robot. I was like, oh, man, I've heard of that. Either I heard of it from a magazine or like a news story at the time saying like, you know, this cool store, for, you know, kind of toys from Asia had popped up. And so I was like, oh, man, I have to check that out. So I think uh, the next time I was in San Francisco, uh, we checked it out. And then that was it. I was hooked. Like, I, I hadn't seen anything like that before. And, you know, 2002, I mean, that was, I feel, it feels like a lifetime ago. I mean, that's early. <laughs> that was, Dunny didn't even come out until 2004. So you were in very early. Way early. So, like, all this stuff was just, like, blowing my mind. And I can't even remember half of it. You know, like you, I know you've been doing, um, you know, your kind of, uh, you know, today in history for vinyl toys and yep. going back and trying to dig up old stuff. I can't even dig up some of the stuff from 2002. There's just nothing out there. There isn't. Trust me, I, I've been looking. If, if it's pre-2005, it's really hard to find on the internet. You almost need to have collected the, the magazines and publications that were advertising this stuff back then, and even that's kind of hard to find. Yeah, no, it's tough. It's really hard. Okay, so back to the tale that you're describing. So you walk into Kid Robot, 2002, what happens? Okay, so go to Kid Robot and, you know, kind of change my perspective on what was cool. Uh, I mean, I didn't have any money back then. I think I was 22, 21 okay. around that time. I think 22. So, I mean, I couldn't afford any of these like $60 figures. And, you know, nothing there was over, you know, they had like one six scale figures from uh, Jason Sue and his Gangster's Paradise. Those are like pushing 120. I mean, cheap by today's standards, but back Expensive then. Expensive for like, back then, yeah. Yeah, especially when you didn't have any money. I just worked <laughs> retail, so. So after that, um, you know, after getting that, that Monsterism figure, I didn't really follow up with Pete's work until maybe early 2003. And I saw his work on the cover of a magazine called Vapors, which is no longer around. Yes. It was a cool, like, skate and uh, kind of like urban culture magazine. And funny yep. stories, like fast forward, like four years, I ended up working for that magazine when I moved to L.A. But that's uh, quite the coincidence. Um, anyway, so I saw his work. And uh, during that time, I was going through a really bad breakup. And I was just kind of at Borders. You guys remember Borders? Oh, I remember Borders. Oh, yeah. yeah. Bookstore. <laughs> so, you know, I was at Borders, uh, like, all the time, just drawing and just trying to get my mind off, you know, whatever was going on in my life at the time. And so I find his work, and it was just like a, you know, I know I had his figure, but I didn't really connect with his work until that magazine and that feature and kind of reading about, you know, what he does and just seeing, like, his range of style and just how he designed characters. and Right. It was really inspiring. And at the time, I was really focused on just graphic design because I wanted to go to school for that. And uh, I never really considered illustration as you know anything I would take seriously. But when I saw that, I was like, man, I want to create my own characters. You know, from that point on, it, it just kind of the, the urbanites, as you described earlier, was they were they were born from you know, seeing his work and being inspired by it. Yeah. Uh, P. Fowler's inspired a lot of people. And I also know he's been the gateway. His monsterisms was the gateway for a lot of people being introduced to designer toys. But to hear he was your inspiration to basically pursue illustration as a career versus graphic design is really interesting. And then how do you <laughs> then get your earth? So you work, start working on the urbanites. How do you get those in front of weed and wheat and then get those produced? 
Right. So the story continues. So, you know, I'm developing these characters and there's like, I don't know, a little over a dozen. And uh, like the first time I showed them was at like a small shop that my friends had owned in Midtown Sacramento called Revive. And, you know, that's it's no longer around, but that was the first time I've ever like, you know, put my work up. But, uh, you know, all this time, you know, my friend and I would be going to Kid Robot almost on a monthly basis, like, or sometimes bi-monthly, because uh, San Francisco is only maybe an hour and a half from Sacramento. Okay. And at the time, Huck was the manager. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. Yeah, he was the manager <laughs> of the San Francisco store. Times have changed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was just running the shop. And then, you know, I was telling my friend John, man, you know what? One of these days, because they would all they would host monthly art shows, and he and I would always try to. We wouldn't make it for the openings, but we would try to just see what was up. And then, you know, eventually we started building rapport with Huck because we would come in so often. Uh-huh. And back then, you know, not that many people came into the store. So I told my friend John, I was like, you know what, man, someday I'm gonna have a solo show here. And so I'm building up these characters, and you know, I, I got them printed at Kinko's, and I, was, <laughs> and I put them in one of those Itoya portfolios. And I was like. I forgot when it was, but maybe actually, you know what? Sorry. Let me back up. Let me back up. <laughs> a bigger, a bigger thing happened even before my first solo show at Kid Robot. So before that, 2004, MySpace was huge. Oh my god! I don't know. I don't know how I could forget <laughs> MySpace. So MySpace. So, <laughs> so during that time, MySpace, you could actually meet people and develop friendships, and yeah, it was a yeah, it was a, a platform that was taken seriously. And so through MySpace, I met Joe Ledbetter and Thomas Hahn. Wow. And then uh, another one of my friends, uh, he, he went by Tragnark. Uh, so yeah, jo- Joe and I became friends through MySpace. And uh, he said, hey, I'm uh, curating this art show in LA called uh, Art Throb. And it was at a gallery that's also no, no longer around called Cannibal Flower. And so being from Sacramento, I was like, man, an art show in LA? Yeah, of course. So, you know, that was the first time I... Uh, showed my my work there because because of Joe Ledbetter, which is really funny because back then he was selling his paintings for a hundred dollars. <laughs> what? Wow! Times have changed. Jeez. Yeah, and uh, so at that art show, I sold all my pieces, which was crazy <laughs> because prior to that, like I don't think I've sold anything. Maybe one thing at you know my friend's shop, but it was yeah, just really just to for not fun. be established and sell out. That's amazing. Yeah, it was great. And so at that show. Nicole from Kid Robot was also, she happened to be in town for something. The Baroness? Yep, the Baroness. So I met her there, and I knew her, well, knew of her because I was on the Kid Robot forum a lot back then. And then also at that show, I met Richard from Weedy Wheat. And so at that point, my heart was all in an urban vinyl. I, like, I just, <laughs> you know, it's so cool to make a toy. Back then, there was no, I mean, there, there weren't that many resources. <laughs> no, you know, no, to, you're not kidding. Yeah, the self-produced, I mean, especially when I was like 22, 23, like, you know, a $10,000 toy might as well have right. been like a million dollars. Yeah, most people uh, can't afford that even in, in their adulthood. So, so it really sounds like this is kind of just a, a case of being in the right place at the right time, meeting Joe and Thomas Hahn on Facebook, and you go through the show and Baroness is there, and you meet, uh, and this is where you meet Richard, the guy who was behind Weenie Wheat for the first time, right? I think that's where he met Joe, and, oh, and Thomas Hahn, yeah. Okay, that makes sense now. Yeah, at one point, all all three of us were kind of under that label. Yeah. So we established the relationship, and uh, fast forward to 2005, you know, I show Huck, you know, so going back to that portfolio I made, <laughs> I bring it into Huck, and I tell him, 
you know, I really like to have a show here. Can you take a look at my work and let me know if it's something you'd be interested in? And so he looked at it and he said, yeah, let's, let's set something up. <laughs> and so, you know, fast forward six months, um, you know, I had my first art show at Kid Robot, which is pretty crazy. And at that, at that point, I had a prototype of some of the Urbanites characters that Richard was developing. It all came full circle. And it, it was a dream come true then, you know, just me in college wanting to do this from seeing Pete Fowler's work. And it, it was just crazy. So It's crazy, but I love hearing all this, all in this early day stuff, the magic of the early days of walking into a shop and showing your portfolio to the yeah. hot gee of all people. And uh, just how things get started out. I mean, MySpace, come on. <laughs> it's crazy. And like, you know, Joe went on to do, you know, amazing things. And that's when I also met uh, Jeremy Modell. And I was part of his artist series in 2005. And, uh, oh, man, Gary, I don't know if you remember. So Kid Robot also had a line called Psy Boys or CI Boys. Yes. I yeah. <laughs> so I was invited to that. And I forgot it was Kid Robot's property. But I was invited to do a piece for their, they had a Seven Deadly Sins series. Alex Party was in that. Y- yeah. No. So the funny thing is, like, back then, I did not know how to design for, like, a blank and I took the theme really seriously, and I was like, so mine was like sloth and envy, so I did some like plastic surgery thing, and it was very literal. And everyone else's was like more illustrated abstract representations of the seven deadly sins, and then mine was like, just like, it showed like the lines of plastic surgery. I don't know what I was thinking back then, but <laughs> yeah. If you can go back in a time machine, would you like advise yourself differently in those early days? Yeah, oh, t- totally. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Are you still happy? So the two toys that were the two toys that I can think of that you did with Weedy Wheat, one was the Mellow, kind of. Oh, yeah. It was a giant figure that was what ten or twelve inches, kind of gossamer-ish looking. If, if yes, anyone yeah. who's not familiar, and the other one was Clebus, the farmer, and he came with a little radish. Character. Radish, yeah. Was there more than that, or was it just those two? Well, there's a lot more planned, but. Uh, I, Things got complicated, and they just never. The line never finished. Okay, I know that was part of the series Urbanized, but the styles of the two different. They were very different. Like the the Mellow was more of a rounded three D character, and the Clevis was almost block style. Yeah, they they all had different silhouettes. Okay, uh, like you know, at the time I was like really digging into Illustrator. Everything I was doing back then was like big vector shapes, and uh, you know, you know, I was also inspired by. Animation and the Powerpuff Girls because they were still big back then. Oh yeah, and just a lot of influences thrown into the pot. I mean, you designed those in your early twenties, so when you look back at those, are you still pleased with the designs, or would you want the opportunity to <laughs> oh, revamp them? No, oh man, no. You know, I I I would like to leave those in the past. <laughs> I actually I, I dug them up again just to kind of because I haven't looked at them in a long time, and it's just um or maybe maybe I could do like fan art of them now. <laughs> no, do it. I would. I would love to see what you would, how you would retranslate them today. Because no, they. I mean, those designs. I think the mellow, especially, still holds up today. But they were kind of representative of designer toys, you know, fifteen years ago. Yeah. So I think you, know, you were so young when you designed those. You were still finding your style and exploring and experimenting and having lots of inspiration. So I think it could be like a fun assignment to revisit those. I definitely think they represented like who I was at the time. I was really into like urban culture and graffiti and like, soul music and just all these all these different things. So I, okay. I definitely think it's a, it's a capsule of like who I was then. So huh? Okay. Yeah. So like when they did that release, when we we did like the release at that ice cream shop in Burbank, 
That was one of Toy Break's very first outside interview or outside review things that we ever did. Oh, man, I didn't know Toy Break went back that far. Oh, yeah. But yeah, you're right. The, the ice cream shop in Burbank for the, uh, was it the white one? Yeah, the marshmallow sure. one. With yeah, the it was s'mores. the white. Yeah, so long ago. <laughs> so, so Chris, I have a question. And I yeah. do want to remark, I've actually I've been trying to Google and look up these toys you're talking about. And the mellow has a kind of Andrew Bell sort of feel to it, don't you think? Oh, yeah, I knew Andrew back then, too. Yeah, it was so that that piece actually was so mellow came i didn't design him independently he was part of a larger piece where he was kind of behind a house and it was sunset and uh, he was just kind of lurking i was like oh you know that, that's a cool character i've always been a fan of like big characters and small characters like you know like if you see like a gang of characters there's always like the tank or the heavy guy yeah. so i've always been kind of like attracted to you know having that contrast in the characters i designed so he ended up being like you know the the big gentle giant so these toys that you did with weedy wee were they based off of the characters you were previously designing or were they brand new oh uh, no they were based off the characters i had designed already okay so the yeah. three shows you were talking about the two different gallery shows and the show at kid robot those were illustration pieces of your different characters you wanted to make into toys yes all part of this urbanite series i had back then okay and so Mello was one of the urbanites that yes. you had envisioned. Yes. Okay, cool. Same with Clebus. Is it Clebus? Clebus, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting how different the designs are. Like it's one world, but, and I'm kind of, right. I'd be curious to know what the rest of them look like. Are they out there somewhere? Oh, the illustrations? <laughs> if you want to post the link, I can give you some images just for reference. But... He said he wanted to leave them in his past, Teresa. Like the poor Chris just wants to move on. <laughs> I know, but I just I'm curious. I want to know what the like the because to me they're very different characters. So I'm kind of curious what the rest of the world looks like and how varied yeah. they are. I, I can send you I can send you guys some images afterwards. Oh please do! I'll need to use something for our promo image. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay, so I want to stay in the past a little bit longer because there's something I want to ask you about before DesignerCon. It was called VTN Vinyl Tory Network. Yeah. And uh, they both had the same mascot. The, the name is Vincent. And today's mascot is a little different than what the VTN mascot was. Today it looks a lot like George, and I think it basically is based on George. But the Vinyl Toy Network version of Vincent was actually designed by you. So how yes. did you hook up with Ben to design the mascot for the convention? Um, I met Ben at the first VTN. I mean, this was all through Richard back then. Oh, okay. you know, he knew all – I mean, being in L.A., he, he knew Ben, but um, – yeah, I don't know. I think it was just, I think Ben just liked my work and, you know, I wanted to be more involved in the community. So, uh, yeah, I just, I think, I, I can't remember if he asked or if I offered, but <laughs> Vinny was born. I think it was Vinny in the beginning and then it, he you became Vincent. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So for, for those that don't know, uh, Richard from Weedy Weed and Ben from 3D Retro and DesignerCon are the, they started Vinyl Toy Network. So oh, Vinyl Toy Network was their convention. Oh, yeah. So Richard Richard probably had something to do with you bringing you in to do Vinny at the time. And then when Richard left, uh, Richard left Los Angeles and moved back to New York, uh, Ben found a new partner uh, with Aileen and they, dis they did DesignerCon together. Um, and okay. they, Basically, that's how Vinny became Vincent, was he grew up into a bigger convention. So Vinny grew up and became Vincent. Why did, um, why did Vincent become you? 
It, it's not me. It is you. It's totally you. The, the same hat you used to wear, the beard you had, like that's a caricature of you. It, I, I mean, that's something you'll have to take up with Scott. I, it's, it's, I, I stand by. It's not me. It's supposed to. It's, it's a take on because Vinny was a very round character, yeah. so it was a take on making him more angular and more square, and growing him up into like a, 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 a more adult hipster, or, yeah. or otherwise known as George Gaspar. Otherwise known as me, but no, I, I stand by that is not me. That is a completely different thing. That is Vinny grown up into Vincent. Okay, all right, uh, Chris, I want to talk to you. So, you did the Toy to the Weedy Wheat, two thousand six, two thousand seven, and there was kind of when they released, and then it seemed like you went on this long hiatus until the recent Dunny series uh, in last year, two thousand eighteen. So, what did you do between that long span? I know you kind of went into a little bit of. Uh, independent production but did you just mainly focus on your illustration career because that's how i know you you started out doing toys and then i just primarily followed your illustration career but then you mentioned that you worked for a magazine called vapors that was kind of tied in with the toy community a little bit so a lot of this toy stuff was going on when you were in college so once you got out of schooling did you just primarily focus on your illustration career and just kind of set the toys aside yeah, when I moved to LA originally, and in, in right after college in 2000, the summer of 2006, it was to work for Richard as his, you know, in, in-house designer illustrator, and um, that didn't pan out, and I had to find another place to work, and uh, I ended up finding a Craigslist ad for for Vapors, which was insane. So I did a test for it, and uh, ended up getting the job as their art director. But you know, at at that magazine, an art director meant one person designs the entire magazine, Jeez. which is just crazy. So I worked with like, you know, a couple writers, but you know, I, I had to do a lot of the, the photos. It was nuts, but that's I mean, not I an entry had... level position. You went in as head guy. Yeah. Wow. It was crazy. I, you know, I think, uh, I was extra motivated at that time because of the kind of connection I had with the magazine. Cause it was based, the magazine started in Sacramento and, um, it's just, just weird you know, serendipity that I ended up working there after college. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, that that was for a few months. And then after that job, uh, I ended up getting a job at uh, this um, motion studio called Buck, which is kind of where I cut my teeth on developing my, my style as I started working more in advertising and, and things like that. So, Okay. So is that why kind of the hype? Well, go ahead, Teresa. Sorry, I just have a quick question. So the Weedy Wheat stuff ended because Weedy Wheat, the company, went out of, like, stopped? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So it wasn't like an out-of-business thing? He just decided to move on to Richard? Uh, He he, he, – I'll say it because you probably can't. Um, He kind of burned a lot of bridges, and he was was kind of volatile back then. And uh, he ended up falling out with almost all of the artists that he worked with at the time. And uh, kind of went off the off the deep end a little bit, and had to leave LA and kind of re- regroup and reconnect with himself. So he, uh, yeah, he kind of folded Weedy Weed and moved on, and left a lot of the artists in a lurch, kind of on some of the stuff. I mean, th- yeah, I mean, to piggyback off what George is saying, thankfully, I I kind of avoided a lot of what was happening. But uh, it was unfortunate because, you know, when, when Weedy Weed dissolved, you know, all the projects that he had under his belt also dissolved. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of the nature of things. 
So were there other toys from your Urbanite series that were in process of being made that got? Oh, there were some that were uh, like like half sculpted and uh, oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay. I, I think let's get out of the past and let's get to the present. So now we know why the hiatus, you're focused very much so on your illustration career, but it's nice to have you back in toys. As of last year in 2018, you were in two Dunny series. Um, that's kind of what marked your return. It's kind of nice that it happened with Kid Robot. Uh, you were in the City Cryptid Dunny series as well as the Designer Con series, and your designs are fantastic, and you've been missed. And welcome back to toys. Thanks. Well, I, you know, honestly, the gap was because I was focusing so much on illustration for advertising and really finding or trying to get a foothold there and developing my relationships with clients and stuff. So, you know, the toy the toy love has always been there. But in terms of pursuing it as an outlet for my work, it was just not as important as it, you know, as it once was. No, that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, yeah. To, to, to do a Denny 10 years later was a complete honor. I mean, it was, um, it's kind of like, you know, one of those full circle things. Cause I could, you know, I had Dunny's back from series one, just cool to know I've been able to contribute to, you know, their, their legacy. Yes. Yeah, no, it's nice that it kind of came full circle from going into the yeah. store and Huck being the manager to then being in two Dunny series in the same year. And which one did you work on first? They were kind of, kind of pretty close to one another. Did you work on them simultaneously or did you work on city cryptids first or how'd that come about? Um, there was a gap, but it wasn't too big. I think Scott approached me for City Cryptids first. Yeah, he did. As yeah. far as as far as I know, he did because when we brought your name up, Scott was like, "I already got him." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was ex- I was excited when he asked me because I mean I didn't know like how the Denny stuff worked anymore and you know how um, series were uh, developed. So you know, and I was happy George was project managing. I was like, "This is perfect." <laughs> You guys know each other well, George, Chris. No, no, just from just from shows. But okay. George is a good guy. <laughs> He's all right. He's a good I think there's one Aww. person out there who thinks I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Dunny, and so I'm sorry, Chris. I'm gonna have to hijack your episode, but this is something that happened this week. I've sent you guys the email today, so you guys know what I'm about to talk about. But for you listeners, there's going to be a surprise drop. Actually. The day after our record, so by the time you're hearing this, and hopefully you're hearing it the week of, there's a, a surprise drop release of a 20-inch Dunny at kidrobot.com. It is actually one of my designs. It's from the original 3-inch DTA Dunny series, and they've taken the Autumn Stag design from that series, and they've upscaled it to a 20-inch version, and it's stunning. It's beautiful. They've gone all out. They've done detail throughout, new inscriptions. They've added uh, three five-inch Dunny birds to perch upon the Dunny, uh, an actual wood swing. It's just, it's such a stunning piece. I mean, anyone who decides to pick this up, I promise you will not be disappointed. We worked very hard on this. Um, if you want to pick this up, the window is very short. It uh, actually ends this Friday, uh, February 1st. So as after that Friday, you're not going to be able to pick it up. They're being made to order. And I believe it's going to be only in addition to 40. So they will cap it at 40. Wow. So if you do go to kidrobot.com, you can purchase this, what they're calling their uh, kidrobot e-commerce colorway. And if you do pick one up, we want to reward you. So what we've done is um, kidrobot is sending me 20 dunnies. And I'm going to sign 15 of them. I'm going to doodle on four of them, and one of them I'm going to 
personally hand customize and anyone who's ever listened to the show, you know how much I love customizing. So you're, you'll know how rare that uh, hand painted dunny actually is. And, um, but again, I'm only being sent 20 to personalize. So only half of the orders will receive this with their order. And, uh, and again, this is a pre-sale made to order scenario. So these will ship in late May. So this could potentially be one of the most rare 20 inch dunnings. Could be. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, depending on how, how huge, I mean, it's only seven day window to pre-order it. That's, yeah. That's going to possibly be one of the most rare 20-inch tunnies out there. Well, that's, yeah, people like rarity. They should run out to kidrobot.com and then purchase it right now. <laughs> so awful. can I just I, – I have to say, so uh, you've been able to give us the sneak peek, and I'm super happy for you. It looks freaking fantastic. I am super excited, and I'll be buying one. I don't even know how much it is wait, yet. Wait, wait. I haven't, I haven't told you the price yet. <laughs> Oh gosh! <laughs> so I think past twenty inch dunnies were probably around the four hundred dollar range. I don't know what the edition size were. You know, this one could, it could be very low, but uh, I know one there was a J. Rue clairvoyant uh, twenty inch dunny that was about in the five hundred dollars. But this one we're gonna give to you for the low low price of six hundred and fifty dollars. So still getting that, Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? I spent whatever seven hundred whatever bucks on that. Uh, autumn stag shelf. Heck yes, I'll spend six fifty on your dunny, Gary. Oh, thanks, it's Teresa. Thanks. I will spend that money. I, I'll, I'll just figure I will out. Say. You might have one of one. <laughs> huh? Nothing, nothing. That's just me. What did you say? Uh, I said you might have one of one. <laughs> oh. George, you really know how to promote something. Well, I'm just not, kidding. Everyone's going to buy it. Well, I, I got to say, no, look, I, Kid Robot was fantastic to work with on this. They went above and beyond. I never had any pushback. I wanted it to be absolutely perfect, so we went through a lot of revisions. And actually, I went beyond. You know, they usually stop at like a beta, and I just kept going because just things had to be right, and I was being meticulous. And uh, they were great. They they nailed the dry brush I was looking for. They did the swing exactly like on the original stag. You know, a lot of the times in these things, you know, you eventually have to make some sacrifices, and things don't always turn out exactly how you want. But I have to say, like, this is exactly how I wanted it. It's it's perfect. It's beautiful. The sculpting looks great on the figure too. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I, yeah, like the fact that the the wood details are carved into the dunny this time versus just pad printed on and like you said it's got a nice subtle dry brush. I don't know, it looks really really good and you added some fun little carving details on there. I think it looks awesome. I, I want to buy great. it. I think people are going to love it. They're going to eat it right up. It's crazy that it comes with three five-inch dunnies. <laughs> I know. Right? <laughs> yeah. I know. I was, you know, I was looking at that sneak peek image, and I, I was just thinking about army building with just the little birds. Yeah. You know what? When, when it was originally proposed to me that this should include three five-inch dunnies, I was like, that's awesome. But at the same time, I'm thinking, will collectors potentially want three five-inch dunnies to be included because one it might increase the price of it but also i'm thinking many collectors are probably going to use this to display their other toys and maybe not the dunnies but when you see it all together it really does complete it as a, a single piece and uh, it looks great that way so i'm glad they ended up going that route uh, but again for the price i think one reason is it's so expensive because of all that new sculpting every single piece got a new head uh, a new head mold body mold arm molds everything had a new mold now you said when you were just talking about it you said it was an e-commerce kid robot e-commerce color does that mean 
or other colors planned or how does that? So I knew you were going to ask this and I'm sure uh, people online are going to be asking the same question. Um, I did do two colorways and there is the second colorway is actually on the box. Um, But as far as it, if it's going to be produced, I really have no idea. I think this ended up being a very expensive piece to produce and that's why they decided to go the pre-sale route with it. And um, I imagine that second colorway, if there is one, I imagine it will be a, a retailer colorway open, you know, available to all retailers. But it's probably going to end up being dependent on the sales of this one to help determine quantity or even if this is a successful design. So I think this is kind of a wait and see scenario. Right. Cool. So while we're doing some promoting, let's take a brief moment to mention some of our sponsors. So for all your Desire Toy needs, wants, and desires, we have three amazing stores for you. First up is 3DRetro.com. 3D Retro is a producer of amazing art toys, but along with that, they have a brick-and-mortar location in Southern California. They host lots of great events. The store is amazingly beautiful, so if you're in the area, be sure to visit 3DRetro.com and say hello to their team there. Our next sponsor is StrangeCatToys.com. StrangeCat Toys is awesome. They've been supporting us since the beginning. Corey is an amazing guy. So if you go to StrangeCatToys.com and you're a listener to the show, load up that cart and use our promo code MARSHAM at checkout and you'll receive 10% off your entire order. And lastly for the stores is My Plastic Heart. My Plastic Heart is located in New York City. If you're in the area, you definitely want to check out their quaint little store. Vin is awesome. The store mascot is awesome. His name is Kiba the dog. But if you can't make it to New York City, fear not. You can visit MyPlasticHeart.com, load up that cart, and as a listener of the show, if you live in the States and spend $75 or more, use our promo code TOYFAM at checkout, and you'll receive free shipping on that order. Otherwise, to stay on top of all the latest and greatest in toy news, be sure to like and follow SpankyStokes.com and TheToyChronicle.com. And I think that's it for the plug. So, Chris, we can finally get back to talking with you. <laughs> yeah, what do you what do you guys want what do you guys want to know? Well, we're talking about Denny's, right? And the yeah. two designs you did for City Cryptid and DesignerCon. <laughs> so I know the City Cryptid had more of a theme behind it, so you were driven more off that. But for the DesignerCon series, I don't know, I mean, George, you might have something to add here, but was that just you just coming up with whatever you wanted, or was it based on some illustration you've done in the past, or was it brand new? It was brand new. I think that was the cool part about the Decon series was that anything goes. Because I think the last few series of Dunnies that I was familiar with, they've all been kind of, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe they're all locked into a theme or maybe a single artist did one theme across all of them Mm -hmm. versus, you know, a bunch of different artists contributing to one theme. But uh, yeah, so I was was super excited to just do whatever I wanted. So your your preference, because we've actually talked to a couple people about this, about what their preference is, if they prefer having a theme drive it or just being open-ended. So it sounds like you prefer the open-ended approach. I don't know. Creatively, I guess I would always pick that. But sometimes having constraints is a good thing, just so you don't have too many options. But I mean, Scott's uh, the City Cryptids theme was just a really cool twist. So I was excited to work on that as well. Yeah. Did you get to select the cryptids that you wanted to do or were they delegated to you? Well, Scott had a huge list of like uh, cryptids he had researched and then it was like an Excel doc or something. And then all the ones that were taken were X'd off. So the, the popular ones went quick, like Mothman and um, 
Shoot, I'm trying to think of some others. <laughs> but I really want to do Mothman. And so I was like, oh, man. So, you know, someone took that. Ah, uh, Chris. Yeah, so, I, so, so basically, I went down the list and had to do my own research to find out, like, you know, what designs kind of lined up with, like, my style but that I felt like I could pull off on the platform. Yeah. Um, you know, we were given restrictions, like, you know, you can have one accessory or one sculpted detail, but not both. And since I was the first time I worked on the platform, uh, I was really just a fan of, you know, just basic paint apps, you know, without too much sculpting. So I wanted to kind of keep the Denny shape, uh, you know, front and center. Yeah, no, they're fantastic. They turned out great, Chris. And they're, they're actually my favorite in the series, along with Candy Bolton's. But one thing that I really like that you did with them is your photography. Is <laughs> you took those, and for your promotional images, you just did your own promo images, and you did your own little setups. And your photography work was beautiful. And I it's I always enjoy seeing your little setups that you come up with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, where, do you, where do you get those, like, the teeny little butcher stop uh, table the mini suitcases do you make those yourselves or are you buying those somewhere uh, so those are uh one twelfth scale dollhouse accessories but a lot of them i had to order from thailand apparently like thailand makes a ton of like miniature foods and and dollhouse things that you just can't find and then the the table i just made out of balsa wood same with the luggage like a lot of that was just like miscellaneous one twelfth scale dollhouse stuff so any, any chance I can find mini, mini props for a photo shoot, I will take advantage. <laughs> yeah, well, that, like, I always like doing that, too, because I like taking toy photos for fun. And most of the little mini stuff I have is more like foods, oh, like, yeah. uh, you know, like erasers or just, you know, small scale stuff that I can like, make it look like a toy eating it or whatever. Like the remake, do, do you buy that stuff? From Remit? You know, no, yeah. you know, I know about Remit. I've never really gotten into it because most of what I see lately is themed like Rilakkuma or oh, Hello yeah. Kitty. And I'd rather have more like, you know, your props where they're not necessarily branded. But granted, I haven't really explored into it too deep. I've really, like, if anything, I just have like random stuff I find, maybe even like the dollar section of Target. But so are you mostly getting those things off eBay? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Either. There's not. I wish there was a one. Like, I wish there was one web store that just had everything dollhouse accessories that you could just buy from. <laughs> but you, I really have to right. hunt this down. Yeah. That's, I think maybe that's part of my problem is I have the hunter in me for some things, but I haven't really put a lot of hunt behind accessories because I know they're out there and I see them all the time. And so many times I'll see photos and they'll comment, be like, "Where'd you get that?" And yeah. the answers are all over the place. I'm like, ah, I just want to be able to just go to a website and just buy a whole bunch. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the thrill of the hunt, I guess. Like for the Jersey Devil, I was like, I wonder if they make a mini meat grinder. So I was like typing in dollhouse meat grinder, which is like a crazy band name. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, the, you know, it turns out they make one. I was like, oh, my God. And, you know, it's, it's, it just blows my mind, like what's out there. Yeah, I mean, Teresa, if you're looking for a place, kind of a one-stop shop for some more of, like, the unique kind of items, there's this great miniature store that we talked about on the show years ago, but it's called LC Miniatures, and on there is just a huge collection of hundreds of miniature, you know, the size of a thimble or smaller, vintage board games and dolls and golden books and all sorts of stuff from our childhood, just, and they're done really, really well. They even have little Target bags and gift boxes and stuff like that, so, you know, check that out, that's Kind of stuff would look great in your photography. Oh, I remember you showing us that. 
Mm-hmm. Well, Chris, let's start talking about some of your self-produced uh, stuff. Uh, recently, we saw a designer con was that beetle, the resin beetle that you did, and you're doing this all yourself. You're not having a company do this. You're hand painting all these yourself. Uh, yeah, I am. I had my friend sculpt that, and uh, I'm working on the second run right now. Or, well, not the second run, but the rest of the edition. I didn't have it completed for decon. How do you have the time yeah. to do this stuff yourself? We saw, I mentioned that long list of clients. It seems like you're always working and have things going. Why not? pay someone or farm this work out to a, another company. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> yeah. And well, you know, the, the other thing too is, you know, I'd probably ask for more help, like outside help if I had a studio that was not my house. But mm. um, right now it's just, I'm at home, my fiance and our dog. That's it. You're not exactly making things easy on yourself as a self-producer. You're not really doing micro runs of something that's more easily manageable, like a five or 10. You're doing pretty sizable runs of 50 and when you reached out to me before you began that uh, wood whale one you're kind of just picking my brain about tools and stuff like that and i kind of knew that like being familiar with wood toys like that was going to be a big time-consuming undertaking on your part and when i saw that you did 50 is like damn he's going to be putting hundreds and hundreds of hours into this thing but the final result was beautiful beautiful presentation and uh, i love that piece yeah. So, well, initially when I was talking to you about, you know, your your wood projects, how you cut everything on a bandsaw and all that, I was like, man, there has to be another way for me to do it. Because maybe on a, you know, if I did an addition of one or two or three, you know, cutting out on the bandsaw would be, uh, wouldn't be that bad. But right. since I was doing 50, I was like, there's no way I'm going to do that. So uh, there's a sign shop that I use in the, in the Midwest called I-45 Signs. And he has a, he cuts my phone core signs on a, like a CNC router. Yes. And I was like, so I asked him, I was like, do you know anywhere that can cut wood? He's like, oh, I can cut wood. I was like, you can. And then so like a light bulb went off in my head. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not buying a bandsaw to, you know, to cut these master shapes, you know, because I was really focused on like the, the presentation of it all. And, the, and even though the bodies were computer assisted, uh, I still had to cut the fins. I had to sand. I had to do so many other steps. It's just like one step was taken care of for me. So I was like, okay, this is enough work has been cut out where I, I mean, it was still a lot of work, but I can still reasonably complete this project. Yeah. Isn't technology great? What they can do with CNC router machines and stuff today, it's just what a time saver. I mean, I still like getting in the garage and being working with my hands and being covered in sawdust, but just if you could just take a file and send it off somewhere and they can just spit this stuff out in a couple hours and save you several weekends of work, that's that's beneficial in its own. But even if you have someone doing that for you, you still have to prep the wood and just do all that painting. And that's that's a big undertaking too. Yeah, it was nuts. Uh, and then I cut paint masks using uh, my cry cut and contact paper. So I would you know, create one shape to mask it, then I have another shape that reverse masks so I can oh, paint okay. the other side. Because I wanted it as clean as possible, but then it still wasn't clean enough. So I would, I would go in and uh, just hand paint the edges and clean them up. Yeah. But by the time I was halfway through the project, it was like, well, I'm, I can't go back now. <laughs> I have to finish. <laughs> I don't think. Well, it's... And I think. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Gary. No, go, you go ahead. I was going to say, I, I know what's what, one thing that's really cool about your process, both with these whales and your rhino beetle, is that you share a lot of the work in progress. And I remember you sharing those kind of things of, hey, look, I saw, I found, you know, I, I'm really proud. I figured out this masking stuff, going through it. And then you're like, oh, well, it kind of didn't really work. So now I got to go back through and clean it all up. Yeah. But it's going to be awesome. <laughs> and, and if I remember right, they didn't 
get finished in time for the event that you originally had them planned for, did you? No, they were supposed to be for Decon last year, and I ended up finishing them, I mean, after Decon, so... Yeah, it didn't so are, work. are there any whales still available to purchase? I have or four they all... left. Yeah. <sighs> what let's, was the price point? Let's on? try to sell those things. <laughs> four left. Uh, yeah. there, there, it was one fifty, and it comes with a custom box and a pen and a print and all that stuff. And then each of the sailors, there's three different types of or uh, three different colorways of the sailors, just to just to spice it up, so you don't know which color sailor you get until you open it. Honestly, that's a screaming deal. Only one fifty. <laughs> <laughs> I know everyone Everyone said I should charge more and then... Yeah, my suggestion yeah. probably would have been to do less and charge more. So you could have made the same money as the 50, but had to actually do less. But the final presentation with the box, the pin, the print, and that box is printed in the States. So you had a lot of, you know, uh, overhead on that project. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay, fine. For your listeners, 175. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no! It's a lot. No, you should do the opposite. Make it like, you know, one... 40. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, we were talking with Chris Reiniak. If you ever break down the hourly wage that we get for doing these things, it's probably not much. And especially after, you know, the, the IRS comes and takes their cut of these things, you're probably making like 50 cents an hour, Chris. Yeah, no, no. For these passion projects like this, it's I'm definitely not getting <laughs> minimum wage. <laughs> but, but, you have to I mean, say, I love I mean, it, I- so. Yeah, and as I mentioned, I think it's really cool that you share so much behind the scenes because it's fun for me to both watch it come together but also kind of learn how different yeah. people do things. And especially on the rhino beetle, watching you, like, lay out and the fact that the eyes were, like, two pieces and you had to spray them separately and then combine, combine them together. I was like, <laughs> was Yeah, I'm going to do a whole write-up in, on my blog that um, kind of outlines that process, the process so it's not fragmented on Instagram. But Your MySpace page account? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. My Zanga. <laughs> now, speaking of self-production, there was another one that you were working on, a collaboration with amazing artist Matt Koffenberg. It was uh, the Joyriders with, like, the Mars rover and a couple characters on the inside of it. And This is something I feel like we saw several years ago, and I believe there's going to be a Kickstarter campaign. So what's going on with the Joyriders? So we decided this year that we're going to fully pursue that. Um, we just need to get it requoted because it's been so long. But um, I don't think we're going to do a Kickstarter. I think we're going to you're going to self produce a pre-order and uh, some other things. But um, we're just going to going to go for it. Oh, nice. And what do you think? Is that going to be vinyl or resin? What are you thinking? Uh, it's vinyl. Uh, okay. uh, Big Shot Toy Works was helping us out with oh, that. Nice. They, they did the prototype, and uh, Clem's awesome. So yeah, you know he's been he's been a lot of help. Yeah, no, you're, you're in good hands with Clem and Big Shot Toy Works. And actually, Teresa George, he's a guy that we should probably have on soon because just the wealth of knowledge he has on the toy scene and the number of projects he's worked on, he'd be a great guest. Yes, yeah, I agree. Let's do it. Man, what are these? <sighs> okay, like I'm... She's going down I'm the rabbit hole, Chris. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm just talking on Instagram because that's, you know, sometimes when we're talking, it's nice to kind of look at some of the visuals. But what are these little... You cut out some cute little paper craft characters with a little dude that's a bowl of ramen, but it's his boat and he's using the chopsticks as oars. Can you please oh, make yeah. that a You know, adorable. All right. I, I was going to uh, talk about that series. So that's by a cup. I don't know if the company's name is Decol, but that series is called uh, Concombre and it might be Cucumber in Japanese. But if you just look up Decol, uh, Concombre and Google, 
you're <laughs> that that is a rabbit hole. So I, I do collect those. <laughs> They're just super cute and uh, some of the vignettes. Oh, they have. okay. Those are so those are things you collect, not have made. Oh no, no, I didn't produce them. No, but I but I made the backdrop. You know, just for the photo, just had yeah. some uh, yeah some paper. Oh man, those are cute. This is this is the problem of talking to toy people. Is there's always more toys and <laughs> it's not a bad yeah. thing because we do get introduced to new toys but well, I'll look through a collection of like say Christmas it's just mass where I'm zooming in and looking at hundreds of little toys I'm like oh man where did you get that I had to track that down how did you find that and Chris a lot of the stuff is just vintage it's hard to find like recently you've picked up a lot of the Nisei ice cream mascot toys and I'm really jealous you got those because those are not easy to come by oh yeah the Nisei stuff yeah I've uh, I think I've tracked down almost all of them yeah, Yahoo! Yahoo! Japan Auctions is my oh. Achilles heel. Yeah. See, give your secret. See, I've always I've heard about that, but I can never get past the translation. I'm like trying yeah. to figure out how to use it. Do you just guess your way around? Well, so I use a there's like a translate plugin for Firefox, and uh, okay. so once you can kind of dissect the words, you can first it'll obviously translate to English, but then if you hover over a listing, it'll show the Japanese. And then you can kind of try to pick apart what you need from the Japanese and then search for that in the search bar. So I have a huge like notepad of just uh, different combinations of things that I, you know, search for all the time. Nice. Yeah. And then I use a third party buying service because you can't buy from Yahoo Japan, you know, just like making an account and buying. So. I mean, uh, I'm looking at your Crazy. account now and just re-seeing those Nisei vinyls. <laughs> I'm just like, damn it. So now I'm going to take your advice. I'm going to just sign up for some Japan eBay account and just try to track this stuff down. I basically, I want, right? I want your collection. That's what I'm saying. Well, and I think, I think what's so cool about your collection is how eclectic. How eclectic. Oh. What was that? George. George. You playing a YouTube video? <laughs> Sorry, but, I didn't hit the mute button fast enough, and a paper printed. <laughs> I said, "What well, I, th well, I think is really cool about your collection is how eclectic it is, because if you kind of scroll through your feed, you see designer toys, but then you also see mascots and vintage, and it's just all over the place. You sat, it's kind of like me, but worse. You just collect everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I collect cute stuff too, but I mean, I used to collect a lot of like '80s and early '90s vintage stuff, Ninja Turtles, He-Man." things like that. And I, I recently sold almost all of it. And, uh, you know, just, just trying to reduce what I have. I mean, I still have a lot, but <laughs> yeah. When I look at your collection, Chris, I can tell you like the color orange. You have a lot of orange in that office. There's a lot of, yeah, I guess so. Orange and purple. It's weird. <laughs> your collection is vast yeah. and eclectic, but there's a lot of things I'm going through. Yeah, there's a lot of vintage and there's a lot of designer toys, but just a lot of stuff I'm not even familiar with. Yeah, I think um, I always tell my fiance like it's uh, my my thing is my problem is I have too many interests, and the thing is Japan makes something for everyone's like hyper like niche interest. So if you you if you you know if you're looking for something, like I'm really into like um, the ocean and fish and you know things like that. And Japan makes the best, like, nature-related, like, mini figures. Normally, they're, like, gachapon style. Mm -hmm. Or not style, but that's how they're sold. I mean, they'll make stuff that you would never think they would make a figure of. And I just have a whole shelf dedicated to, like, like nature figures. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So crazy. 
I need to stop looking at your account. <laughs> I know. And it's dangerous. Well, I heard, so George and Gary were telling me that uh, not only do you collect a lot, but the way you display is is really cool and unique. I kind of want to hear, apparently you, what did, you said, George, that he has like actual store shelves. I mean, I don't know if that's still the case, but didn't you oh. at one point you were displaying with like store shelving units? Oh yeah, so I mean, the you know, you can get display, yeah, display cases at IKEA or whatever, but um, you know, the, the larger ones are really made for, um, you know, retail stores. It's just like you know, you go to a toy store or whatever, and then they have like a sliding glass door that's, you know, bigger than what you normally see. So you can just get one of those from like a retail supply place, and um, it's not that bad. It's just putting them together is kind of a pain hmm. so yeah so i picked up uh, i picked up one of those right, well two of those i gave one to a friend because i was trying to downsize <laughs> <laughs> but i mean uh if we can circle back to the rhino beetle uh i want to tell you so this yeah. year a certain company was interested in picking that up as a produce or you know mass produced piece can we take oh. can, can we take guesses <laughs> no well i mean you can guess but i won't oh confirm. come on i won't play like a, a <laughs> game of guess who do they have a mustache are they bald? Yeah. Uh, but it's exciting because it happened at Decon. And, uh, you know, really, my goal was to hopefully attract the attention of, you know, of, of a company who might want to be interested in producing it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just happy it worked out. And this is, again, so why Designer Con is an amazing convention. Things happen there. Things there, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it, it's really uh, the way I set up my booth and everything is – I always say, like, uh, my motto is you know, paint the back of the fence. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, even though someone doesn't see it, you know, you, you still have to finish the job. Right. So, you know, I always make sure everything is presented the best uh, the best way that I, you know, that I can. Oh, for so. sure. Your booth presentation no, and exhibits is phenomenal. It's always, it always looks amazing. It's something to behold. If there is a DTA award for booth setups, you're a finalist every year, guaranteed. Oh, thanks. <laughs> no, well, and... And I don't know if you have any more to talk on toys, but related to that, I mean, the, the way you display your booth reminds me a lot of your day job because I know you do this, you know, a few toy things on the side and then you do a lot of illustrations, but your day job is stuff with Target, right? Uh, yeah, Target's one of my clients, but it's just mostly advertising illustration. I mean, stuff for board games. And uh, right now I've been, well, I've been working on the Wendy's Kids Meal for the past year and a half. Um, are you behind the Happy Meal toys for Wendy's, Chris? Because those What's are that? you did those. Are you behind the toys for Wendy's? Because those are the best Happy Meal toys. Like they put anything McDonald's does to shame. Like Wendy's has the best artwork, the best creativity, and the most playability of any Happy Meal toy out there. Oh, okay, so it's actually so when we so my friend Matt and I, who I'm doing the Joy Writers project with, we got brought on. So the illustrator that did those kind of blind box figures that, you know, with the plug-in arms, he had uh, kind of established the, the, the direction for the kids' meals. His name is Chip Loss. Okay. He's like a, he's a really good illustrator. He's been around for a long time. But, Fantastic. Um, yeah, it's really cool. I mean, Wendy's is doing stuff that no one else is really doing right now because they're not doing uh, licensed properties. It's kind of just whatever... Yeah, they're just doing like original creative stuff. Yeah, you mentioned the Chip Wass ones with their ABS figures, very cool designs, and then a lot of interchangeable bodies and uh, paper cutouts for accessories, and just really clever stuff. And I also have one like a stackable mall. Yeah, yeah. Little different uh, shops like an arcade or a 
uh, a store and stuff like that. And another one was an entire place out of medieval and underwater characters with backdrops and 16 different paper cutout characters to play with. It's awesome. Wendy's is killing it. <laughs> well, we didn't work on, yeah, we, we didn't work on those. Those were chips, um, chips designs, but, uh, you know, we came on afterwards, but we've been working with them. Awesome. You know, since. So. Well, I'm looking kind forward of- to it. Like the next, so in the next year or so, we're going to start seeing some stuff from yourself and Matt Koffenberg at Wendy's. Uh, no, stuff, is, stuff has been out already. There's oh. a few projects on my site, and I actually just got some more samples today of things that are coming out this summer. Huh. Uh, some really some, uh, some really fun building things. So Nice. Yeah. Oh, man, I'm trying to go to your site to go see what they are. Yeah, there's like a dress-up kit or like a disguise kit um, that's out now and or that was out and uh, like an activity book set and some other oh, things. I'm looking at your site now. Now I know. Yeah, no, my kids used to love. Actually, I love these things probably more than my kids. But they played with the uh, the build your own like cartoon activity book like a lot with all those different stickers. And I love the character designs and they had fun just building the, their own cartoon stories. But you also did that gingerbread one for the holiday season. You're, you're working on a lot of fun projects. Yeah. But yeah, so that's been fun. But really, yeah, but my my client work is kind of all over the place. I do all kinds of things. And then. Yeah. You're full-time freelance. I'm full-time freelance. I've been okay, full-time wait. since uh, 2009. So the, I always get so confused when people talk about freelance and I should know better because I do do design. So you'd think that I wouldn't be such a noob, but when you say you're freelance, does that mean that people other, you kind of just have various companies that come to you for projects or are you working through one specific company, like an agency and all the work filters through that agency? Uh, I mean, you can be a freelancer that has an agent and, you know, a lot of illustrators have agents that represent them and find them work. Uh, For me, it's just me. So I don't have someone finding me work. Um, It's just kind of the, the, the contacts I've made and just sometimes just the luck of the draw when I wake up and get an email. Because that's what I was going to ask, like, how do, like, I've always wondered how people get into, like, Happy Meal toys and, like, Target and all that. So, Target and Wendy's, like, how did they find you? Designer Con. Uh, well, actually, Wendy's found me from Designer Con. <laughs> See, really? That's awesome. Like, uh, maybe, but it's not Wendy's. It's the agency that works with Wendy's. It's uh, Strotman. But, um, yeah, you just never know who, who comes to these shows, especially in L.A. Yeah, you know what? That's a great thing to point out. Conventions are not just about sales and merchandise. You're not – if you don't break even, it sometimes happens, especially when you're starting out. But by having a presence at these huge conventions like a, you know SDCC or a designer con, there's so many art direct- directors walking the floor looking to discover new talent for future projects that you'll never know if a Ted Haliber of Target's going <laughs> to discover you there and hand you a business card, you know? Like – just by being there, you're getting so many eyeballs on your work and your brand that it it's more than sales. It's having a presence, and it's I can't tell you how many times of coming home from a, doing exhibiting in a San Diego Comic Con, I would come home with so many business cards of just the potential for clientele, and it's it's up to you to follow through on that and you know network and build relationships. Yeah, I mean, my relationship with Target actually didn't come from a convention. It was more just. Uh... I mean, it was a crazy, I mean, the short story is uh, someone ordered a print from my store. Their email address was someone at target.com. I wrote him back saying like, hey, I've been really interested in doing a gift card. Yep, in the work in that department. And they didn't, but they're like, I don't know, but here's the person that, uh, here's the person that does. So basically she had brought 
this woman had bought a print for her husband who was a fan of my work. So it was it was just complete just coincidence. And so she connected me to, to contact there and and that was it. And then it turns out that he had come across my website a few months prior and forgot to bookmark it. It's just like a crazy just chain of events. <laughs> I mean my whole my whole career has been very organic in that way where just things kind of happen in weird ways. You make it sound easy though. And you make it look <laughs> I know, right? He's like because I'm sitting here going, okay, like those jobs sound super cool. And I pray my employer doesn't listen to this and think I mean anything by this. But <laughs> it's always like, oh man, like it'd be awesome to do that. Like, how do I get there? Now, granted, I don't, you know, it, I think the difference is that you have been exploring illustration kind of on your own, learning your style and putting it out there. I obviously haven't. So maybe that's the, the key. But I just looked and saw that you designed the freaking. Quaker dinosaur egg boxes? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my yeah, God. So those it's, are delicious. it's all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> but those are delicious. Oh, my gosh. That's yeah, a guilty that was out for a while. I, I, don't know, I don't know if they're still around. Yeah, that was kind of a refresh of, of that line. No, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I had those in my pantry at one point. I'm a child. Like. <laughs> at one yeah. point, there was, a, there was a Target Halloween. Yes. Piece. You yes. had done stuff for one of the signs they had at one point was a, it was like a giant gluten-free sign for the gluten-free candy and stuff. And it was like a spider and it just said gluten-free. Did you do that one or was that somebody oh, else? The, the spider was by Don Clark of a, of a invisible creature. Yeah. He, he designed that. that okay. I have that one hanging in my studio because I was actually able to get one from a target. So I was just wondering if I had your work or someone else's. Oh no, I did the, I did the year prior. I was like 2013. That's what I thought. Okay. It sucks though. They just throw that stuff away, and then everyone's like, "Oh, how come you don't keep it?" It's like, oh, because those signs are like, those signs are like three feet wide. I don't even know where I'm gonna put. That's why I was able to get one because they, they they were taking it down, and I asked the guy who was taking it down. I was like, "Hey, what do you do with this stuff?" He's like, "We just put it in a baler." I was like, "Can I have this?" He's like, "I don't care." Yeah. That is so painful. Yeah. So if you catch Wait, them all, okay. you know, as they're taking it down. I'm going to start stalking my target and finding <laughs> like finding a, you know, 16 year old employee who's just doing his job and be like, Hey, I'll take no, that. you could actually do that with like movie theater standees and standees and stores and stuff. Sometimes you can contact the manager and say, Hey, instead of throwing that out, here's my number. Let me know when your guys are done with it. And they'll oftentimes they'll just give it to you. Yeah. I mean the guy in the back who was taking it down, who probably had no authority at all was like, I don't care. And I took it and walked out of the store with it, and no one stopped me. <laughs> and no, no, no one's going to say anything. <laughs> when I used to work at Hollywood Video when I was in high school, and we would get those standees, people would ask for them all the time. Yeah. I'm going to carry a ladder into Target and just take a sign down. Just take them down. Like, let, let me help you. I will be do your it, free employee today. Changing the signs, and you'll have no problem at all. I mean, dude, yeah. I could wear khaki pants and a red shirt if that's still their thing. I think I, I used to work at Target. I bet I could find my old work badge because I don't throw anything away. I just walk in, you know, grab a sign, walk out, call it a day. <laughs> so you work, so your business, your freelance art side of the business, that's under the beast's back, but you also have a separate company called Night Cake Press. And is that for more of your more merchandise type stuff? Um, well, the beast's back has art prints and stuff, but Night Cake is really, that was started when at the end of 2015 when, uh, enamel pins were kind of just starting to get popular. It's like, oh man, I want to make pins, but I, want, I don't want to do it under the pieces back. I want to create another brand for it. So just it lives independently of my other work. And then um, 
from the pins, I just started exploring other things. I started doing patches and working different styles and basically started as a side project and it became a full-on separate business, which is um, <laughs> not what I intended, but I mean, I'm, I'm glad it, it is where it is. I was going to say, how many enamel pins do you think you've done? I think probably close to 100, maybe more. Yeah, since 2015, yeah, easily 70 or 80. Yeah. yeah, since then. Yeah, it's just cutting the few hours that I have during the day down to even fewer hours. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah. Here's a question. I, I don't want this to come off wrong, but this is something that's come up several times uh, on previous episodes and talking about intellectual properties and people doing fan art and selling fan art type stuff at conventions and profiting off of that fan art. So what I'm curious because you do this a lot, a lot, you do a lot of, um, you know, pop culture related, you know, art prints and, and pins and stuff like that. So what would you say to someone who might say that you're coattailing off of someone's existing popular IP? Well, I used to do a lot more fan art uh, conventions and I've been slowly, you know, making uh, what I offer more, just kind of my original uh, creations, just, kind of based on what I've been interested in now. And yeah, it's just kind of an evolution of just, you know, just um, what I like, but man, it's such a great, it's such a great area because it is, I, know. I mean, technically, yes, it's, you know, it's wrong, but I feel like if you do good fan art, at least in my experience, the, you know, the companies that you think are going to take your house are going to want to work with you more than they're going to want to smash you in a foot. So I guess only draw fan art if you love it. You know, if you're just drawing stuff to cash in on a particular thing, then I don't know. I mean, technically, that's also still wrong. Like I said, it's a huge gray area. <laughs> it is. but I, I it's... Mean, it's Whether it's policed or not, I mean, you know, you read stories where it has been, then you go to Comic-Con or and, you know, any comic convention and, you know, you see it everywhere. It's like, so, you know, what's the answer? And I, you know, I don't know. You just have to, whatever your moral compass points to, then that's what you do. Right. <laughs> you know, if you feel like you feel wrong about it, then you don't have to sell it. There's, you know, there's tons of people who don't and they're fine. Did you ever get any good jobs from doing that kind of work though? I mean, I imagine if, like you said, if you're doing good work, a lot of times they take notice and essentially you're kind of giving them free publicity. So have you ever received good work, like good clients because of the pop culture stuff you were doing? Yeah. I mean, that's how I got, um, like there, there's a star Wars action figure compendium that I've done kind of mimic the, the yellow um, uh, 96 back, you know, which was all the characters of the old, like Kenner Star Wars yes. figures. Yeah. And so I did that as a, you know, side project. I was like, man, I want to draw all these, but just as their toy form, like maybe in 2012, that's when I did this in yeah, 2012. So I did it as a big 24 by 36 poster. Yep. And then maybe a year, year and a half later, Lucas licensing wrote me an email and asked if they could license it for Star Wars Celebration, along with some other prints I had done even before this uh, compendium poster. Wow, so, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, like I said, it's, <laughs> you know, I didn't do that with the expectation that they would notice it. It's just more I did it because I wanted to do it. And, I mean, I love Star Wars. So, um, you know, and I and the, and the fan art I do do, I'd like to try to, you know, make it as, make it interesting or have a twist. That's why I was like, oh, it'd be cool to make, like, the card back versus just drawing uh, a stormtrooper or something. Um Right. Have you ever yeah. received a cease and desist letter from anybody? I've heard of several artists that have, and I've heard there's people going around conventions and handing them out. And I imagine it's when they're doing their brand injustice, but have you ever received any? I have never, personally, no, I've never received one. Nice. If I was making like a Stormtrooper action figure, 
maybe that they would find that more threatening than just like an art print. Even then, you know, people who are making like that, you know, like bootleg Star Wars stuff. I mean, it's still parody. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not the right person to ask whether it's right or wrong. I just no. I'm not. I'm not. Ask, I'm not yeah. asking that. Regardless, I've just yeah. we've heard the other side of it on the podcast. So I'm, like, I, this is one of the first times we've had someone who's kind of dabbled in that area, and I was just kind of what your opinion on it was. Yeah, I mean, for me, like uh, for the the client work that I have been able to get for my fan art, it's kind of like you know showing the brands what you can do for them. Yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, obviously, what they saw was like. A product that could be bought which you know that's goes back to what you said about you know selling ip and stuff but i don't know like i said if you if you if you're doing something that's you know the brand feels like could help enhance their their license you know their licenses then they're going to want to work with you so right no that makes absolute sense and i'm so i didn't want to put you on the spot at all it's just you're one of the few people that I we've had on the show that has done um, pop culture related artwork, and we've heard both sides of the coin. Some people are a little more strong minded on how they feel about it, but really, I think most people people really don't care, especially when someone like yourself or Scott C is doing it so well. I think certain people, um, you know, the heads turn away for, but. Um, yeah, so let's move on. So I wanted to circle back to what you were talking about, how your Beetle was actually someone at DesignerCon is now wanting to mass produce that. So are you planning to do the same Beetle just in a vinyl form, or are you going to change it up a bit? Because I know sometimes when someone buys, I think your Beetle was a run of 60 or 70 pieces, when someone then mass produces it, the mass production one ends up being a lower price, and sometimes that can ruffle the collector's feather. So I was just kind of curious if you're going to change it up at all or keep it the same. Well, this, the, the plan, well, the, the sculpt has to be modified a bit just because of how the resin one that it is yeah. can't be pulled out of a mold, I guess, certain angles and stuff. So it's going to be tweaked. Okay. So even, even the, the resin one to the vinyl one eventually won't be the same. Okay. Yeah. But the colorway is going to be introduced that kind of purple and orange that's kind of the, the quote-unquote standard colorway. And even then, it's, you know, the hand-painted one versus how a vinyl piece will look where the, the vinyl is cast in the color. There, there's going to be a difference. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's what I've always said. I, I had yeah. one collector. He bought the uh, – I did this custom of a, before the Monster Totem, my vinyl toy came out. I did a, just a one-off hand-painted piece for a Stranger Factory show. And, uh, and then I ended up mass-producing that. And I changed some things up. But because I ended up mass-producing that, he no longer he was very disappointed and no longer wanted that hand painted version. Um, uh, so it's like there's there is that disappointment for people thinking that they have something rare and special. And what you just said, to me it still is. That's what I actually made on my saw with my own sweat and blood and hand painted. So he did have something truly original. But I guess when it went to a mass production level in a vinyl form and much cheaper, he felt that maybe devalued what he had, so he he uh, unloaded it pretty fast. Yeah, I, I think a good example of that too is, uh, so I had bought, or not, I was gifted uh, Amanda Vassell's Dragon Scout, or Wood One, it was like an edition of 25 or 30, like way back at VTN. I mean, that became a vinyl piece. Yeah. But I mean, I'm super happy I have one of her earlier, uh, you know, wood pieces, because I, I just can't afford them now. Yeah, no, see, I think that's hard because, like, uh, Rado Kim's Bread Cat and Box Cats, I think, are a good example where I got into her work early on when she was doing it all herself. So 
um, hand casting resins, hand painting, all that stuff. So I got one of the dino cats from her and she eventually went to make, I think it's Sofubi or something, but, um, she now customizes the Sofubi. So they've got steams and stuff. So they're different, but they're cheaper. Mm-hmm. But like, I look at mine and I'm glad I got one of the earlier ones because I know she made it all herself and there's something special about that. So I don't know. I think it's hard, but like the fact that you handmade and hand painted and put that personal touch on that first run, I wouldn't be upset that productions were made. I'd be excited about it and yeah. I'd be excited because then maybe I could pick up others and other colors down the line. Right. No, I think it just varies from collector to collector. Everyone's going to see it differently. You know, if someone doesn't usually have $500 to drop on something and they do and they found out if they just waited nine months, they could have picked it up a, a vinyl version of the almost the exact same things for a $450 cheaper. That would have offend a lot of people. And then they would just sell that piece off and whatever. But if you do know the person who bought your one-off piece that they're going to turn into a mass production, it's kind of nice to reach out to them and say, Hey, this is happening. You know, I hope you're okay with it. And maybe I can send you the vinyl version of it for free or just do something for them to make them feel better and know that they were, you're, they were thought of. And I don't know, maybe this is a question for George too, but like, you know, people who buy action figure prototypes, you know, and then those become super valuable, even though they've made, you know, tens of thousands of the the mass produced version. I mean, it's, I feel like, Gary, it's a similar situation. Like yours is technically the prototype for the mass produced version. That's true. I mean, you know, the prototype was made, you know, like you said, blood, sweat and tears. So... I don't know. Well, let's ask the listeners. If you, you know, bought something that you you paid good money for, a custom, a hand painted something from someone, you paid good money for it. How would you feel if you saw that item then later, you know, reproduced as a uh, mass production piece? Yeah, it, it's such a hard question because it's not like, it, I mean, it happens all the time. I think especially of Dunny Customs and now eventually Janky Customs. There's so many times where we see even with like your your autumn stag dunny and silly's krampus and like all of that like it's pretty common for customs to be a way for people to get noticed to make a production piece part of the scene it happens in the painting world a lot too i think where like someone will take a painting that they've sold and then that painting will become a print but you have the original painting it's the same thing as that so it's like yeah you have a print of it but i have the painting yeah, the same as like that one-off you made. It's like, yeah, but I have your original. You guys just have a print. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Personally, I think it's some you know the people who are um, turned off by that are definitely the minority. I think I, there are more I people. Think so yeah, I mean, I'd be excited to put the the mass-produced one next to my original. You know, so. Oh yeah, I think that's what most people end up doing too. Yeah. But you can't. I don't like the idea of like frowning upon an artist from making a buck. Let's say they did a custom or they did something for a show and it ends up being really popular or a company reaches out to them and wants to mass produce it. Like that's how these artists get paid. And if they did something that's well liked enough to take to a mass production for a company to spend thousands of dollars on something, that's, that's their right to do so. I think. Well, and the whole point of making this thing in the first place is to get someone to see it, get everyone to see it. The more people right. can see it, the better. So if you have one, great. One guy's got it in his house. Yeah. But if you can make multiples, then everybody can have them. And that's the whole point of it. Well, that's the whole right. point of designer toys, right, is making affordable art for people. Like you can't afford that Gary Baseman painting, but you can afford that $80 toy of that character in that painting. Yeah. Right. 
Well, and like the whole point, I think one of the big things of the scene is you like artists you like, you should be wanting them to have success and be excited for them to grow their success. So there's so many artists that back, like I've bought pieces of theirs that may not have been their best work, but I liked it enough that I wanted to see it go. I'm like, keep making stuff, keep doing stuff. I like this. I'm buying it. Now go make more. And it eventually leads to the point where they make, they get better and learn and eventually get production pieces. And it's like part of the growth and involvement of the scene. Yeah. You want to support that. Yeah. Wait, so Gary, was your, um, was your Hermes bat, was that originally a wood piece? It was. Yeah, a lot of my stuff always starts as a wood piece. And then, yeah. you know, if I receive, you know, enough people like saying, hey, I want that or whatever, then I start getting like, oh, maybe I should mass produce it. But originally the, the Hermes that I made, it was gigantic. It was 14 inches tall by like 20 uh-huh. inches wide. It was all wood. I think I made three of them. And then, you know, I saw the reception for it at a at San Diego Comic-Con. And then I decided to make a smaller one. And then I self-produced that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's that's on my shelf. I've had that for a long time. Oh, thanks, Chris. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the nice thing about that one, though, is like the nice thing about your Hermes vinyl is it still has the wood grain texture in it. Yeah. Like you could still see. I think it was that one that had it, right? It was the Hermes that had all the wood. Yeah, the Hermes and Sylvan, uh, even the Monster Totem, I think. Originally, what I do, Chris, is I just I make it out of wood and I send it to the factory, and they cast directly from the wood. So, the toy when it comes out in vinyl form still has that texture, still has all the imperfections uh, imperfections of my cuts and dings and dents that might have been in the wood. So you look at it and it looks like a wood piece until you pick it up and realize it's vinyl. Oh, I didn't realize the mold was made from a wood piece. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, you, pick, you can see the wood grain in the piece still. Yeah. Oh. I say myself, I didn't have to pay people like George to sculpt for me. <laughs> I, can't, I can't afford his wages. Anybody can afford me. Come on. <laughs> um, looking back at your toy career, Chris, is there a favorite moment that you can recall? Like any one of those shows you used to do? Was any of them have like a, a heavier impact than another as to what was like a more memorable moment in your toy career just or just artistic career in general? Uh, I had a show with a uh, collab- collaboration show. Yeah. With, with Tato, it was called horror on tour. And uh, Richard from Weedy, we put that together with, with Roto Fuji. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a huge uh, moment for me because for a long time, I was a big fan of their, I mean, their website in general back then, it, it was like flash was in like every, oh, every, God, cool, yeah. every cool site was a flash site. Yep. And they had the best one. And I just remember like how they use their characters and just like the animations they had. And I was trying to teach myself Flash and it was just not working the way I wanted. But I would always refer back to them as for inspiration. But I've always loved their illustration and of all the artists that I thought I could work with, you know, at the time. I mean, Pete Fowler was <laughs> out of the question, but um, I, I felt like they were, their work was approachable to me. So Wow. What year was this? Uh, January 2006. And so, yeah, we, we both, we did pieces where I'd work on it a little bit. I'd pass the file to them and they'd work on it a little bit. And um, yeah, I, all, all the big pieces were done on Canvas. And at the time I had worked at a, a design lab at my college and I printed all the pieces there and stretched all the canvases myself wow. and then sent them to the gallery. But um, yeah, that was really fun. 
Those are some develop. of my favorite shows when the artists actually collaborate on pieces together versus having yeah. what looks like two separate shows. I like when they like they work back and forth together like that. That's awesome. You got to do that. Yeah, and they develop two. Uh, I think two like special plush uh, characters for the show. Hmm. I think one was a bat and one was this like green guy. But um, I don't recall the yeah. show at all. I'm gonna have to look this up. It was called Horror on Tour. Okay. I have I have pictures from the event too. If you want me to send them to you. But. No, please do. I would love to see that. I'm a huge fan of Tato and and yeah. Chris. So the fact that you guys worked on a collaborative show together, that's mind-blowing to me. That's my kind of show. So <laughs> I would love to see that. I'm actually jealous that it happened and, and that I missed out on knowing about it. So uh, please send those over. But, Chris, we're running near the uh, the end of the episode. We're going to start wrapping things up. I have a couple more questions for you. So you've already touched on a few projects that are going to be coming out soon that – uh, we can expect like the Joy Riders, the collaboration with Matt Koffenberg, and then uh, the Beatle that uh, a company is going to reach out to you and do some vinyl with. Is there anything else that we can look forward to from you this year or maybe early next year? Uh, yeah, there there is one other one, but I can't say either. But <gasps> yeah, can we take, take guesses but, on this one? Kid Robot. Not Kid Robot. This is with another another company Ooh. but i think i think teresa might like this one based on Wait, you, the type of stuff you collect <laughs> but it's but it's cuter it's on the cute side yeah i mean Ooh. is it as cute as a rhino beetle i don't know but it is definitely <laughs> cute <laughs> is it gonna make her squee that's all that matters yeah also this, this also kind of stemmed from decon so i mean you know decon is a is a is an important show for networking Jeez, make, yeah. maybe I should get back into exhibiting there. I kind of enjoyed not exhibiting. I actually like walking <laughs> around and seeing things, but jeez, you make it sound like it's uh, the place to exhibit at for sure. Well, I mean, for, for this specific industry, I feel like, you know, between here and I've never been to Five Points, but I imagine that show is also a great place to, to, to kind of, you know. It's a great community event friends. for sure. Yeah. I mean, if you can make it out to see that one, I highly suggest it. And, but yeah, I think you only do what three conventions a year. I mean, you could probably yeah, do too- the the con circuit if you wanted to, but you primarily stick to San Diego Comic Con, Designer Con, and what's the third one? Uh, WonderCon, Wonder- which is Comic Con's like smaller show. But uh, I'm lucky because in LA, like all you know, Southern California, everything is here and. I can't travel with my exhibit and it's just too much work. So to have a show in the spring, summer and fall is is more than enough. That's been my biggest gripe about uh, you Southern California artists is you have everything there in California. So you don't feel (laughs) the need to really go anywhere else. Very rarely does the West Coasters go to the East, but always the East Coasters go to the West. Yeah, well, a lot of... Yeah, what's up with that? We rule. (laughs) (laughs) shut it Uh, Chris so I think we covered a lot of ground we're going to have to start wrapping it up and uh, I want to say I'm very much looking forward to everything that you have going on in 2019 I'm very excited that you're back to doing toys and that you're your toy drought is, is is over, and I don't yeah every thirteen years. So after after twenty nineteen, <laughs> thirteen more years. No, <laughs> no, you've had a very rainy season. You're going to be in blossom for a long, long time. Your designs are too good to to go away. Like everything you touch is amazing. It doesn't matter whether you're doing toys or or Target gift cards or Wendy's you know toy packs. It's like everything you touch, I seem to love, and I I, I just want your your career really. Yeah, right. Oh, actually, you mentioned Target gift cards, Gary. Random question, Chris. Mm-hmm. Are we 
like I've always wondered, can I just like take them, <laughs> like not charge money on them, and just like take a gift card to keep the design? Is that allowed? Do you know? That's a that's also a weird gray area because there's no value, all right? It's just a card. So, I mean, I've taken them in the past, uh, and then I I always told my fiance there. I was like, if they asked me, like, uh, excuse me, sir, you have to pay for that. Then I'll say either a uh, oh, sorry, I thought, you know, I could just take them or be that I designed it, you know, because I only take the ones I designed, right. so. Uh, did, did, they buy time, that? did they buy that? Oh, I designed that? Well, the other times, I'm like, you know what, I'll put $5 on it, and then I will use that to buy what, you know, something that we're already going to buy. <laughs> right. Well, that's <laughs> what know, I was just thinking. I mean, if I it. had to, yeah, i just load some money on it, do that first, a separate transaction, and then just pay with it and be like, I'd exactly. like to keep the card. Please. yeah. I've done that. I've done that yeah. a couple times when they had the coins because I wanted the coin. Yeah. So you buy it, you put five bucks on it, and then you just do that first, and then you buy your stuff and you pay for it with the coin. Exactly. Huh. Yep. I never they, thought about that. They they don't care at all, and I usually just put five bucks on it and then just pay pay the five bucks on the next thing. Yeah, and the cashier will look at you like, "Okay, weirdo," but still, <laughs> you did it. You did it the right way. <laughs> yeah, they don't care. Like yeah. <laughs> We collect these. Leave us yeah. alone. It's like when I go to McDonald's and I go through the drive-thru and I order a Happy Meal for myself with a girl toy or my, or Wendy's. It's like, you know, you just do what you got to do to yep. collect. Just buy the toy, you know. Yeah, Teresa, you can just go to a McDonald's or a Wendy's or just and just only buy the toy. You don't have to get the Happy Meal if you just want the toy. But Chris, speaking of your fiance real quick, we will yeah. talk on the show the difficulty of buying us gifts because often we've already bought the toy for ourselves. <laughs> Do you trust your fiance to buy toys for you? Does she know you well enough to know what you would want and need for your collection? Or is that something you prefer just to do yourself? Okay. So Christine does not buy me toys. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. So that, that, that pretty much settles that. Okay. Um, but I, you know what, now that you bring it up, that would be an interesting experiment to, you know, say like, okay, this Christmas, I'd like you to buy me a toy. Like, and then I want to see what she gets. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great challenge. I think my wife would even have a tough time with that one. Like, I'm pretty sure she would reach out to George or Teresa or someone who kind of knows me and collects toys to know what true, I want. True, true. But you know, maybe maybe there's a rule where you she can't like phone like phone a friend. Phone a friend. Yeah, it has to be just on her. So <laughs> that's a good challenge. I might give her that challenge. I mean, it doesn't have to be expensive. It could be anything, but it's just like how she interprets like or how, you know, my fiance would interpret like what I buy. <laughs> but they have to be OK with us being on eh, and then willing to throw it away, too. <laughs> right. Eh. All right, Chris, let's, let's, let's wrap it up. So why don't uh, thanks again for joining and why don't you take a brief moment and let our listeners know uh, where they can find you? Uh, you can find me at thebeastisback.com or on Instagram. Uh, it's just at thebeastisback or on Twitter. The beast underscore is back. Nice. Uh, Teresa, go next. Sure. And thanks again, Chris. This is fun. Yeah. But if you all want to find me, check me out on Instagram. My username is tmhawk24. And gorgeous George. At double G toys on Instagram. And I'm Gary Ham on Instagram and uh, superham.com. This has been the Marsham Toy Hour. We do this every week, not because we have to. Because we want to. <laughs> so until yeah. our next transmission, we're signing off. Bye. Bye.